You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, October 24, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. As we begin to jump into God's Word, uh, I was reminded this week um, of something A.W. Tozer wrote in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. It's something that has been a bit of a wrecking ball probably in my heart and soul since I first read it probably 15, 16 years ago. And Tozer said this, he said, what comes into our minds, let's just say your, I'll make it more personal. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. He said, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. We tend to move, just the way it works, the way we're wired. We tend to move in life how we live towards the idea that we have in our minds and hearts about what God is like. Tozer said, were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes to mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. So as we get started this morning, I just want you to take note of what Tozer is saying here. What comes into your mind when you think about God? What is he like? For some, does he even exist? What's his character? What comes into your mind when you think about God is the single most important thing about you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that idea will then shape, give contour to the way that you live? I was reminded of this whole thing from Tozer. Again, it's like a wrecking ball. It's always bouncing around in my mind and my heart. And sometimes I'll come across things that kind of releases the Kraken again in my heart. And I go back to it. And I was reading something by a pastor from Portland, Oregon. His name is John Mark Comer. You might be familiar with John Mark. Um, I was reading and it reminded me. He said, Picture this, the ISIS terrorist beheading the infidel. You've seen the pictures. You've seen the orange-clad jumpsuit, Egyptian Christians on their knees with the ISIS warriors by their side. He said, this terrorist beheading the infidel, the prosperity preacher getting out of his Bentley after late-night drinks at the club with Kanye, or yay, I guess now. The Westboro church picketer outside of a military funeral screaming hateful things. The Hindu sacrificing a goat to Shiva. The gay singer who stood up at the Grammys and says thank you to God for his song about a one-night stand. The Catholic nun giving up a quote-unquote normal life to live in poverty and work for change. All of these men and women do what they do because of what they believe about God. John Mark went on to say so clearly what we think about God. And when I say that, what's he like? What we think about God matters. Matters. In our lifetime, we're probably most familiar with the way Mark Twain said it, but it's been attributed to a lot of people. God made man in his image, and man, being a good gentleman, Twain said, has returned the favor. Meaning, what comes into our mind when we think about God, if we're really honest about it, looks a whole lot more like us 
our mental image of God, what he's like, what he loves, what he disdains, what's for his joy, what's for our good, looks a whole lot more like us, the things we want. He votes like us. His yard signs are like us. He lives in our neighborhood. He, he has friends like ours. He's a lot like us. We tend to create this mental idea of who God is, who God is and as a reflection of our own selves, a God of our own making that we're comfortable with. The six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus in the golden fleece diapers. The Jesus we like with the tuxedo t-shirt that sings lead for Leonard Skinner. That's the one we like, at least according to Hollywood, at least. And we make this image of God in our own minds, and we tend to live accordingly. But is this all that we're left with? Are we just left to our own best ideas, our own preferences, when it comes to the single most important thing about us? Is that all we have to go on? Our friends, the most staggering thing about God is that he has revealed himself to us. He has actually made himself known to us. And you could just sit with that for the rest of the time that we have this morning and consider that reality. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, has chosen to reveal to us what he's actually like. And the story of this revelation is amazing. When we open up the Bible, we are watching the story of God revealing himself, who he is and what he's like. We're watching it unfold right in front of us. It's, it's to this word and to this revelation that we go to have our idea of who God is and what he's like shaped and, and formed. You know, if you go back into the story, the, the high point of this revelation in the Old Testament, it's still, for the Jewish community, it's still the high point of God's revealing himself to his people. It's back in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. It, it starts in Exodus chapter 3. It's there that God goes to a man named Moses, and he calls this man to be the one who is going to lead his people out of slavery and in, in Egypt and into the land and the relationship with God that God has promised. And so in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, you can go write it down and go, go read it this week. God tells Moses to go back and to tell the people that he has sent him. And he says, well, who should I say is sending me? Like, what should I say when they ask me who has sent me? And in verse 13... Moses doesn't use the normal, what's your name in Hebrew that you would tend to find between two people that meet each other, and you go, hey, what's your name? There's two ways in Hebrew you can ask that question. And the way that Moses asked the question there in Exodus chapter 3 is a deeper question. He's not asking, what's your name, John, Tom, Jim, Bill? He's asking the question, what are you like? What's your identity? identity. What makes you, you? And so in verse 14, God says, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. Whatever I am, I will be. And then in Exodus chapter 3, let me turn to it and I'll read it to you. In Exodus chapter 3, 
verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So in verse 15, he says, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, this is to be my name. So did God change names? Did he go right there in the conversation with Moses from I am to the Lord? No, here's a fun lesson for you. Here's your, here's your history for the morning to get us into what's happening in John chapter 10. In Hebrew, particularly in ancient Hebrew, there are no, there are no structures when a word is written out for vowels. If I had done work for you ahead of time and put it up on a screen for you, I would show you. The letters that you see in Hebrew written out, they are just consonants. There are no vowels. Remember, writing was a very economical process back then. You didn't have endless word processing and delete and screens and all that stuff. Supplies were, were very limited. And so it's a very economical language. So it's just consonants. Vowels are marks that are marked around the consonants. But the words are just consonants. And so here in Exodus chapter 3, when he says, I am, tell them I am has sent you. And then he says, tell them the Lord, this is my name forever. What you're finding there is that the consonants for I am are the same root. They're the same root for the name that God gives his people. Y-H-W-H. Yahweh. This is my name. And when you read the Lord in your Bible, like you do right there in Exodus chapter 3, and the Lord is in all caps, it's written that way because as the life of God's people would go on, with so, so great care given to try to obey the commands of God, in particular to not take his name in vain, God's people quit even saying Yahweh, the Lord's name, altogether. They just wouldn't say it. And so when they were talking about him, they called him Lord, which in Hebrew is Adonai. So everywhere you find here in your Bibles, the, the Lord in all caps written, it's where God's people would call him Adonai because they didn't want to say his name, but what's behind the word right there is his name. I am Yahweh. And so in Exodus chapter 33, this high watermark of God's revelation, it goes on. Moses, again, now having wandered with God and his people for a bit, gets to the mountain and he tells God, I want to see your glory. And in Exodus 33, Moses says, please, Lord, show me your glory. And God said in verse 19, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Now we know behind that Lord is Adonai, which behind that is Yahweh, the name that God had revealed to Moses there in Exodus chapter 3. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so God tells Moses to come back the next day with tablets for the law to go on, come back up to the mountain, he'll be with him. And so the next morning, Moses wakes up. He probably woke up early. He does what God tells him to do. And in Exodus 34, verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there. And there the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, I am that I am, I am that I am, a God merciful and gracious 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Here's what I'm like. Here's what I am like. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This revelation, this self-revelation of God to Moses, now to his people about what he truly is like. I don't know if you know this or not, but this is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. By the writers of the different books of the Bible, this is the most referenced, referred back to, and quoted verse in the entire Bible. God reveals to us what makes him him. What he's like. Not, like if I were to introduce you to my wife, I wouldn't say, this is my wife, Erin. She's 5'9", she has curly dark hair, she has green eyes. I would tell you what she's like. This is what God is revealing. And as the story unfolds, and we see it unfold in his word, the story is the unfolding revelation of God's character. It's the demonstration of his character. That he is who he's revealed himself to be. And so at times, as you read the story, God will use different images. He'll reinforce this reality, this nature of his character to his people. And he'll use different images and metaphors to do it, things they were familiar with. And so a principal metaphor throughout the entire Old Testament for who God is, what he's like, and what he's like for his people A dominant picture throughout the Old Testament is that of a shepherd with his sheep. In at least 10, I know there's probably more, but there's at least 10 specific places where God is called the shepherd of Israel and his people are called the sheep of his pasture. Now, if you have some time this week, we won't spend a lot of time this morning, so I'm just trying to get you the picture of what's happening here. You can go and write this down, Ezekiel chapter 34. This is one of the most concentrated moments in the history of God's relationship with his people in the Old Testament where this metaphor is used. And in Ezekiel chapter 34, the first 10 verses of the entire chapter, God speaks through his prophet Ezekiel to condemn all of the religious leaders of his day, those who were under shepherds of God for his people, those who God had put in place, who had set apart and made holy as he had given his law to lead his people as his under shepherds, 10 verses condemning them. He tells Ezekiel, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to you who only take care of yourself. Shouldn't you take care of the flock? You eat the curds and you clothe yourself with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you don't take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and I will hold them accountable for my flock. In verse 11 the tone begins to shift. And it goes from God's condemnation of these shepherds, these under-shepherds, to a different picture. Verse 11 on, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep. I will look after my sheep. 
I will rescue them. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them. I will take them to pasture. I will tend them in good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down. I will save my flock. I will judge between one sheep and another. I, I who? The Lord, the Lord, uh, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I, I, he says in verse 23 of Ezekiel 34, will place over them one shepherd, and he will tend them, and he will tend them and be their shepherd. I, I, the Lord, will be their God. God's people, they continue to long to live with a hopeful expectation of this promise of God. They longed generation after generation for this promised shepherd that God said he would place over them. This was deep in the hearts and desires of God's people. And from this point forward, they would move through various seasons and cycles of of kind of relative freedom in the political, geopolitical sense to years and decades, even a few centuries in some, of continued oppression. The greatest of which probably we're most familiar with is that of the, the Greek empire that rolled in. You know, Alexander the Great rolled in with his huge vision to Hellenize the entire world, to bring the ideals of Greek culture to the entire world. And that had a profound impact on God's people right there in the region of Israel and God's people who through oppression were scattered to the ends of the earth. So big was this impact on God's people that their time became after kind of the transition out of the Greek empire almost into the Roman empire that the majority of God's people in the region of Israel there and then scattered throughout the empire had gotten to a place where they could no longer read Hebrew, the writings of the Old Testament. The appropriate worship of God was being lost amongst God's people. And so they began to translate the writings of the Old Testament into Greek. Those of you that are Bible scholars and Bible nerds have probably heard the term the Septuagint. That's what this is. It's the translation of the Old Testament into Greek so that they could restore the worship of God to his people. And when translating these high points of God's revelation to his people, like Exodus 3 and Exodus 34, the translators who were trying to take the Greek and translate the Hebrew came to these revelations that God gave his people about who he was, his name in particular. And there are two words in Greek that can be translated I am. There's ego and there's I me, E-I-M-I. And the translators take them both and put them together. And in Exodus chapter 3, where God reveals his name to his people, in Exodus chapter 34, where God reveals the nature of his character in his name to his people. In Greek, this is what you find. Ego, I, me. I am, I am. That's what it says. That's the translation that would have been really familiar to the majority of the Jewish community in Jesus' day, who are now living under Roman occupation. So what, right? That's the big question. So what? Well, That matters a great deal because when Jesus stands before his disciples and he stands before the crowds that gather, he stands before the religious leaders, the Pharisees of his day, and declares, I am the good shepherd, they knew exactly what he was saying. Ego, I, me. I am, I am. 
The name that God revealed to Moses, the name that God revealed to his people, the name that was so holy they wouldn't even say it anymore. He's taking for himself. The one who promised to send a shepherd for his people, unlike the under-shepherds who continued to brutalize God's people, not care for his people, God said, I'm going to give you the one. And Jesus shows up on the scene and says, I am, I am. That's what he says. So when we read this in English and you hear him say, I am the true bread, I am the light, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, it's not just I, lowercase a-m, I am this. No, it's, it's the name of God. He's taking the self-revealed name of God's covenant promise to his people and he's saying, it's me. This is what's happening. I am very God of very God. Jesus is claiming to not only be the promised one by God, he's claiming to be the one who made the promise. And it's in Jesus, as we read this unfolding story that God has for us in his word, it's in Jesus that we see most clearly, like never before, what God is really like. The Lord, the Lord, merciful, gracious, Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty. See, this is why as we get to John chapter 10, you find if you look down in your Bibles at verse 19, right after what we stopped reading this morning, at verse 19, John says, there was again a division among the Jews because of Jesus' words. Many of them said, he has a demon, he's insane. And here's the question of the hour, all right? I've set you up this whole time. Here's the question of the hour. John 10, 19. Why listen to him? That's the question of the hour. It's the question of your life. We've taken time to try to help you see what he's claiming and why it matters, but the question this morning is, are you willing to hear Jesus explain why you should listen to his voice. And I want you to understand something from the get-go right here. You are going to be shepherded by some voice or voices. You already are, whether you would admit it or not. The story of the good shepherd, in particular in John chapter 10, is such a familiar picture Even those who don't grow up in church are familiar with images of Jesus, this gentle, sweet shepherd with a lamb over his shoulders and these soft colors. And it's a beautiful picture all throughout Scripture. But here in John 10, it's not a sentimental picture. This isn't a sentimental narrative. Jesus is getting underneath the issue of who you will listen to and trust to care for your soul and lead you to abundant life. This story, remember, is part of Jesus' response and rebuke of the religious leaders of his day. The same ones, the similar ones, just generations removed, that God had condemned through Ezekiel. They're doing the same thing in Jesus' day, and this is his rebuke. And they hated him for it. And a very real line is being drawn in the sand right here. You're going to be led into a vision of life. And those that were standing there before Jesus realized it and they asked the profound question needing to be asked, why is he worth listening to? Whose voice are you going to follow? I mean, realize it or not, our culture, this world, it has a voice. 
If you don't believe me, go home and Google the idea of choice architecture. There are billions and billions of dollars being spent to literally architect scenarios in your life, to architect situations in your life, to get you to a place where you make a decision you thought was your own, but everything has been constructed and spoken of and written of in such a way that it's led you to this very choice. You're making decisions about your life that people are making for you and you don't even know it. And you're being shepherded by these voices to their particular idea of what living really is. Go look it up. Do you know what they call you? I'm not kidding. I'm not joking. Do you know what they call you? They call you sheeple. I'm not joking. They don't even read the Bible, but they get it. They call you sheeple. You'll just follow right along to the voice, irregardless of where it's taking you, and this is how it thinks of you. But some of you in here, you don't listen to other people's voices, right? You lead yourself. You're your own person. You lead you, right? The problem with that is, left to yourself, you're a slave to your own sin and desires. Left to yourself, to be honest with you, you need to be saved from yourself. You're not essentially a good person who has a sin problem to overcome. You weren't just born indebted to the idea of God that you have in your mind and you work yourself out of that indebtedness into his favor. You were born spiritually dead enslaved to your sinful desires. That voice you think is leading you to abundant life will only lead you further enslaved to your own desire. And so this morning, if you have ears to hear, I I, I want you to hear, Jesus gives us all the reasons we would ever need to listen to his voice and find life. Verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Remember, Jesus is taking what is known to them in the physical, and he's taking it into the metaphor, the picture of what's happening in the spiritual and this wolf that Jesus is talking about here, this great threat that he's speaking about, it's It's the ultimate enemy of your soul. It's sin and death. And these hired hands, these bad shepherds, these cultural voices, this this voice of your own enslaved flesh, all these voices, they just want to use you for their own gain. They care nothing about you. Just like God told and spoke and condemned of of the bad shepherds of old in Ezekiel, they use you for themselves to clothe themselves and take the best for themselves. These hired hands, these voices, these under-shepherds, they don't care about you. And so they can't save you. And they'll leave you to your own demise. Which is why it's so profound in verse 11 when Jesus says, I am. Ego, I me. I am, I am. He literally says, Yahweh, if it were to be Hebrew, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
Why listen to Jesus' voice? Well, because the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I mean, this is central to Jesus' identity and mission. In fact, he's going to talk about this five times just in these verses. He's speaking of how committed he is to your joy and your life. He is so committed to your joy, to your life, to your living, that he sheds his own blood. If, if I am willing to lay my life down for you, he's saying, as the good shepherd, what will I not do? Listen, what Jesus is talking about here, very simply for everyone to understand, what he's talking about here is the cross. The reality, the central to his mission that we must work to never let our hearts grow tired of hearing. You see, in his own life on this earth, Jesus lived in perfect obedience to God's will. He lived in perfect obedience to God's law. He was tempted in every way that you and I are. Yet not only in action, but in heart, in motive, in desire, he never sinned. And then he did something astounding. He willingly laid his life down for. That's what it says right here. That's what he says in verse 11. For, for, in the place of, for us on the cross. And it was on the cross that the good shepherd absorbed, took upon himself the just wrath and judgment of God for sin, for our sin. The good shepherd became our substitute. He died in the place for his sheep's very real moral guilt before God, our very real blameworthiness, if you've been here for a period of time, you've probably sang at some point in your time, in my place condemned the good shepherd stood. The good shepherd lays down his life for, in the place of, as a substitute for his sheep. And if you heard what he said when we read it, he said, I laid down my life that I may take it up again, verse 17. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Friends, I don't know what you believed when you came in here or what you think about when you hear about the cross, but it was no tragedy. Jesus is not a martyr. Stephen was a martyr. Jesus is not a martyr. He's the good shepherd. He was no helpless victim to what happened in Jerusalem on that night. No, he planned it before the foundation of the world. In our place, condemned, judged, he stood and died as our substitute of his own volition because he loves us. So that for all who would hear his voice, the voice of the good shepherd, and follow him, God the Father would now see you through the lens of the perfect obedience of his son. It's what's called the great exchange. 
He took your sin upon his body on the cross and absorbed upon himself God's just wrath for your sin so that as you hear his voice and follow him as the good shepherd, you get his perfect obedience, his perfect right standing. This is the exchange of the gospel. And there's 10,000 things you and I are, are blameworthy of this morning. But guess what? For those who have heard his voice and followed, God looks and he sees his son. Yes, there's a thousand things I've done today already that I'm justly blameworthy for. But when he looks at me, what he sees is his son. He laid down his life. And in doing so, man, he, he took a two by four to the mouth of the wolf, knocked those teeth clean out, so that all that thing can do now, for those who hear his voice and follow, all that wolf can do now is growl and snarl. Bite you all he wants, but he's got no teeth. Just gumming at you the whole time. He defeated that enemy, that wolf that threatened your eternal joy by dying in your place as your substitute. And three days later, rising from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death. Friends, he held his own life in his own hand. For those who would hear his voice and follow, he holds your life in his hand too. And nothing can take you from the hands of the good shepherd. Friends, there's no greater moment in life than when that penny drops in your heart on this. This is who he is. This is what he's like. This is what he's done. What am I waiting for? Right? I don't have to create this perfect scenario, this perfect life, this perfect record. I don't have to get myself to a particular place before I can come to this good shepherd. He's just calling. And I just have to follow. I can have this good shepherd now. And I can have these pastures now with him and forever. I read an amazing testimony this week, parts of which I could really relate to. My guess is that many of you could too. And it's really kind of the story of this, in this man's life when this penny dropped for him. Let me share just a moment of it with you. He said, the momentary pleasures of sin, as, as much as I enjoyed there came mounting awarenesses, waves of guilt and shame. They were weeds that kept me from truly enjoying the flower of my sin itself. No matter how often I pulled those weeds, new ones sprang up. Over the years, the guilt and the shame compounded in my soul with interest. It was like an accumulating credit card debt. I made a thousand small impulse purchases and couldn't ever pay off the balance. And the burden felt increasingly crushing. The haunting awareness of my love of self and of the pleasure that sin brought me undermined any assurance I had that God could ever love me. Surely I felt I needed to somehow accumulate more toward God than bad, but I had a sinking feeling that this was really impossible. And then one day I was confronted with the reality that I could never repay my sin debt to God. The problem wasn't that I had try, hadn't tried hard enough the problem was the debt itself was impossible to pay. 
And that's precisely why Jesus came and died in the flesh as the payment for this sin debt. My debt was so overwhelming, so comprehensive, it utterly bankrupted me and broke me. Which is what made Paul's words to the church in Rome so sweet, he wrote. When we were still powerless, when I was still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man some might dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ, the good shepherd, the good shepherd, laid down his life for his sheep. Why listen to his voice? I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. There's no better voice to listen to. But he still gives us more reasons. If that wasn't enough, verse 14, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, this is a, an emotionally effective reality. It's a, it's a deep emotional reality. He's speaking of the knowledge and the knowing of relational intimacy, depth, and connection, the things our heart longs so deeply for, but for so many of us find it so hard to achieve here, even on horizontal relationships. We all want this kind of connection with one another, but we have such a difficult time trying to get there. And Jesus is speaking about this kind of connection that he has with us and us with him, that he knows us and he knows us by name. If you were with us last week, we talked about the difference and some shepherds, they, they knew their sheep so well, they'd play a song and 25 of those sheep pop up and say, that's me, that's my song, right? This shepherd knows you by name. He created you, which means he created all the differences, all the unique things about you. He knows them all and created them. He's aware of what you need. He's aware of what touches your soul, the deepest parts. He's aware of your failures, your weaknesses, your desires. He knows you. That's what it's talking about here, but it's more. I mean, if you've grown up in church, you, you probably heard that at some point, and it's true, and it's amazing, but it's more. The more is in verse 15, in the first two words of verse 15, when he says, just as. I know you, and you know me, just as. The Father knows me, and I know the Father. What is the just as? The just as Jesus is talking about and picturing is the eternal relationship that has always existed and continues to exist and will always exist between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Godhead. The infinite joy and satisfaction that God has in himself, with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus is saying, I am bringing you into that eternal reality. Everything else about your life in this world is fading away. It's not reality. It will fade away. But this relationship between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, this eternal satisfaction and joy and intimacy and connection is real, and it's real forever. And he says, I am bringing you into that. He's bringing us into the most real thing we could ever imagine a reality of connectedness and love that's existed for all of eternity. I don't know what voices you've been listening to and have been shepherded by, but they're not promising this. 
They can't promise this. That's why Tim Keller would say, unless you find Jesus as the great shepherd, you will either try to find this kind of relational shepherding, this kind of care, this someone to make everything right in some human or some institution, or you'll try to be it for yourself and you'll fail, or you'll end up tremendously cynical. And so therefore realize, he said, Jesus is touching on a very deep nerve here. I know you. And I'm bringing you into the fullness of relational connection and knowledge and love for all of eternity, just as I have had and continue to have and will have with the Father and the Spirit. Why listen to any other voice? Why? Verse 16, Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. The fold that Jesus is talking about there was, was ethnic Judaism. God's people had forgotten that his promise from Genesis 3 onward was that God would make them a light to the nations, that his grace and his mercy and his rescue was never meant to be a, a one nation, a one people, a one place, a one location thing. So Jesus says the good shepherd must bring these other sheep in also, and they will listen to my voice. We need to do a sermon series at some point on the musts of God and Jesus. When God the Father speaks to a prophet or Jesus says, I must do something. Those are amazing. When Jesus must do something, you can guarantee it's going to get done. And he says, I have other sheep. There are others not of this fold, and they will hear my voice, and they will be mine, and I will be theirs. He is building a flock from around the world. And I would argue along with centuries of pastors and theologians that when he spoke here, there was a part of him whose eye was on you. Sitting here this morning, his sheep, he is building a flock for himself and his glory. He's doing it right now in Central Asia. He's doing it right now in a country that he has knitted to our heart as a church This country has closed its doors to all things Western, all things godly, all things of Christ. But you know what? The good shepherd is still gathering his sheep there. You know, decades ago, communist China kicked out every imaginable witness of the gospel throughout the entire country. Aid workers, schools, missions agencies, it didn't matter what part of life this, this entity was a part of, they were kicked out of the country just decades ago. Today, Communist China is probably, depends on how you number it, the largest sector of gospel witness in the world itself. And they are sending out scores of missionaries around the world. And the doors are closed. This is the very thing we're praying for right now, for our own church family in Central Asia, for that nation and for those people. The good shepherd is, is... growing his flock. He's calling his sheep, and they're going to hear his voice. You and I, we get to bear witness to this shepherd. We get to go in the confidence that his sheep will hear his voice, and as we proclaim his word, they're going to hear, they're going to listen, they're going to follow. We get to go in the confidence that we can't lose because he has his sheep, 
and they will hear his voice. Even here in this city, he has many people in this city that are of his flock. We get to go and bear witness to the goodness of the good shepherd. And people will hear his voice. Friends, he'll draw his sheep. He'll draw those who are his. Listen, he drew you here this morning. He delights in you being here. And because of that, so do we. You need to hear under the authority of the word of the good shepherd. He drew you here this morning. You belong. He's a good shepherd. And not just a good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. Will you listen to his voice? Will you let his voice lead you? I know for some it may sound too good to be true, but I want you to hear me this morning. You cannot out the grace of this good shepherd. Do not allow the voice of your own pride to try to sit in his place and tell him what he can and can't do. He laid down his life fully and sufficiently for his sheep. Do you hear his voice? Will you follow him? He is saying that he wants to be and has to be everything for you. That's what a shepherd is for the sheep. He's everything. He's not a consultant. He's not a professor. He's everything. Friends, you and I need this good shepherd. This morning, will you hear his voice and let him shepherd you to abundant life? Will you resist the the weight of trying to be perfect before him? And just literally, I, I don't have a better way to say it, just melt into the reality of his perfection being given to you in exchange for your sin. That you would allow him to lead you in and out and find good pasture and have abundant life. As we get ready to respond to God's word this morning, the musicians can come ahead and go on and take their places. I'm just going to read out loud to you Psalm 23. And I just want you to close your eyes because as we respond to God this morning and we prepare to receive communion, remembering his body broken, his blood shed in our place for our sin, Everything that you hear in Psalm 23 is enjoyed in that bread and in that cup. And as we prepare, I just want you to hear it and feel it, phrase by phrase. This is what God says about himself and about you and his care for you. Just listen. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you, the good shepherd, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me 
all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, we thank you this morning for your son, Jesus, the good shepherd. You did not send a hired hand who will abandon us to sin and death, but you sent your son to lay his life down for us and to give us by your grace a right standing that's accepted before you. Lord, would you help us by your spirit to hear his voice and follow. We ask this in his good name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.